The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Lord, you listen to the desires of those who suffer. You steady their hearts. You listen closely to them to establish justice for the orphan and the oppressed so that people of the land will never again be terrified. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Micah Belong, the wise old llama MB, joined today by the wonderful W. Scott McCandless, one of my favorite guests to have on the show. Of course, all of my guests are my favorite guests. But when I want to go super deep and nerdy with someone about something that I have never thought about before in the Bible, there is nobody better to talk to than Scott. So, <laughs> and if you are not listening to his podcast, Retelling the Bible, you absolutely should, because some of the insights that he has there are just phenomenal. So uh, I feel like I'm constantly only getting caught up, but <laughs> the way that so many of these stories are reimagined have really brought new life into them. That being said, we are going to read a passage that is um, a little bit familiar, and then a passage that's a little bit less familiar that are really one and the same passage that continue on in their way. And so we're going to go ahead and jump right on in to the text. Genesis 29 through 30, verse 24. Jacob got to his feet and set out for the land of the Easterners. He saw a well in the field in front of him, near which three flocks of sheep were lying down. That well was their source for water, because the flocks drank from that well. A huge stone covered the well's opening. When all of the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the well's opening, water the sheep, and return the stone to its place at the well's opening. Jacob said to them, Where are you from, my brothers? They said, We're from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is he well? They said, He's fine. In fact, this is his daughter Rachel now, coming with the flock. He said to them, It's now only in the middle of the day. It's not yet time to gather the animals. Water the flock, and then go, put them out to pasture. They said to him, We can't until all the herds are gathered, and then we roll the stone away from the well's opening and water the flock. While he was still talking to them, Rachel came with her father's flock, since she was its shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, the son of Laban, his uncle, and the flock of Laban, Jacob came up, rolled the stone from the well's opening, and watered the flock of his uncle Laban. Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Jacob told Rachel that he was related to her father, and that he was Rebekah's son. She then ran to tell her father. When Laban heard about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him. Laban embraced him, kissed him, and invited him into his house, where Jacob recounted to Laban everything that had happened. Laban said to him, Yes, you are my flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for a month, Laban said to Jacob, You shouldn't have to work for free just because you are my relative. Tell me what you would like to be paid. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger Rachel. Leah had delicate eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and was good-looking. Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will work for you for seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, I'd rather give her to you than another man. Stay with me. Jacob worked for Rachel for seven years, but it seemed like a few days because he loved her. Jacob said to Laban, The time has come. Give me my wife so that I may sleep with her. So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a banquet. However, in the evening, he took his father Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he slept with her. Laban had given his servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her servant. In the morning, there she was, Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What have you done to me? Didn't I work for you to have Rachel? Why did you betray me? Laban said, Where we live, we don't give the younger woman before the oldest. Complete the celebratory week with this woman. Then I will give you this other woman too for your work, if you work for me seven more years. So that is what Jacob did. He completed the celebratory week with this woman, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban had given his servant Bilah to his daughter Rachel as her servant. Jacob slept with Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He worked for Laban seven more years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to have children. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. 
She named him Reuben because she said, The Lord saw my harsh treatment, and now my husband will love me. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. She said, The Lord heard that I was in love, so God gave me this son too, and she named him Simeon. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. She said, Now this time my husband will embrace me, since I have given birth to three sons for him. So she named him Levi. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. She said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing children. When Rachel realized that she could bear Jacob no children, Rachel became jealous of her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children. If you don't, I may as well be dead. Jacob was angry at Rachel and said, Do you think I'm God? God alone has kept you from giving birth. She said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Sleep with her, and she will give birth for me. Because of her, I will also have children. So Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as his wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Jacob. Rachel said, God has judged in my favor heard my voice, and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah became pregnant again and gave birth to a second son for Jacob. Rachel said, I've competed fiercely with my sister, and now I've won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah realized that she had stopped bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as his wife. Leah's servant Zilpah gave birth to a son for Jacob, and Leah said, What good luck! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah gave birth to a second son for Jacob, and Leah said, I'm happy now, because women call me happy. So she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, Reuben found some erotic herbs in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Give me your son's erotic herbs. Leah replied, Isn't it enough you've taken my husband? Now you want to take my son's erotic herbs too? Rachel said, For your son's erotic herbs, Jacob may sleep with you tonight. When Jacob came back from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must sleep with me because I paid for you with my son's erotic herbs. So he slept with her that night. God responded to Leah, She became pregnant and gave birth to a fifth son for Jacob. Leah said, God gave me what I paid for, what I deserved for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah became pregnant again and gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. And she said, God has given me a wonderful gift. Now my husband will honor me, since I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulon. After this, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dina. Then God remembered Rachel, responded to her, and let her conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and said, God has taken away my shame. She named him Joseph, saying to herself, May the Lord give me another son. So this passage is, first off, one of the very few romantic passages in the scripture. And when I say very few, I really mean like, there's this one where Jacob works really hard for Rachel, and there's David and Jonathan's love affair, and there's Ruth and Naomi's wedding vows, and... I can't think of another example. (laughs) Oh, the centurion and his boyfriend. But, you know, this is the only one that at least appears straight on the surface. But here with the relationship between Rachel and Jacob, they don't really fit into the gender categories that they are assigned. Shepherding is a dirty job. It's for lowlifes. It's for dirty, manly people who are, you know, out there doing nothing. And that's why it was a little bit strange that David was a shepherd, right? Because this nothing, this backwards person is the one who is raised up to be the king, right? And it's also why Jesus is greeted by shepherds and the three wise men. Those two opposite figures where the very high and the very low come before Jesus, right? And this stark contrast of shepherd, Rachel is not doing the womanly work, staying at home, caring for the garden, that sort of work. She is out here being a shepherd, uh, uh, this traditionally masculine job where Jacob was the gardener, where Jacob was the one doing the cooking at home, where Jacob was filling all of these these feminine roles. And so even this straight relationship is a very gender non-conforming relationship. And that seems to be the only way that romantic love can actually seek into the story um, of these ancient Israelite myths. Now, that, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I've always suspected that the reason why Rachel is the one doing the shepherding is supposed to maybe be a reflection on, you know, poor Laban. He apparently only has daughters. <laughs> and so he has to send one of his daughters out with the sheep. And, you know, she's kind of seems to be at the mercy of all these other male shepherds because she's waiting around for them to, to open up the well and everything. But yeah, it's, it's non-typical. 
Of course, it's also non-monogamous, which is uh, also a big part of it. <laughs> yes. Uh, that doesn't certainly doesn't fit with our ideals today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a really strange relationship for this re- reason. I can't think of another time that Jacob does anything that's really this, like, quote-unquote manly, right? Where the shepherds are all like, no, we wait for everyone to get here so that we can all move this giant stone together. The Hebrew is really like a giant stone, a too big to be moved by one person's stone. Yes, and if you recall, our we had our conversation back in Genesis, right? Or, well, we're still in Genesis. Back earlier in Genesis about how this was sort of a way of controlling access to the water so that you had you could only move, the stone was designed to only be moved by large companies when all of the flocks were together so that everybody got an equal share of the water. That was, that was the, well, the water sharing system. Yeah, so this is an impossible feat. I've always assumed, uh, and I haven't obviously heard your discussion on on Jacob's ladder, uh, but you remember in that story, like Jacob is sleeping with the stone as his pillow, and after he gets up, wakes up from the vision, uh, he then sets it up as a pillar. And it doesn't say how big this stone is, but I've always assumed that this was probably an origin story of some great big high pillar that actually existed at Bethel. So it does kind of suggest superhuman strength at that point too. But those are the only two points. And this one is presumably when he's so love struck that he has this incredible burst of energy. Yes. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's when the mother is able to lift up the car because her baby is underneath it. And Jacob is able to lift up this giant stone because, you know, this woman that he's just fallen in love with is right there. And and so, you know, it, it is, it seems like the only time that Jacob really fits into this masculine role, right? And even right before he does that, he weeps aloud, right? And weeping is not in an Israelite culture the same way. Israelite culture does not have this concept of of toxic masculinity that we do in a lot of ways. Ancient Israelite culture was a lot more emotional. You see it in the Psalms that there are these descriptions of the depths of depression and anxiety, and lots of characters cry throughout the Bible. But it's particularly interesting that he falls so in love that he starts weeping aloud for this woman, and then he goes and does this big manly feat. (laughs) That's the only time, you know, or one of two possible times when he seems to have this superhuman strength that does not typify the rest of his existence. Right here, we begin to see these echoes, right? This is a unique story, but it has all these echoes of what are the other things that are happening? What are some of the central metaphors that are going on? And longtime listeners will remember that a well is a source of yonic energy. It is a deep hole that is the source of life in these desert communities. And so the fact that Jacob is able to move this well is the sign that he's going to be a very fruitful father, ideally with Rachel. Now, of course, we see that there's this opening that is directly in opposition to the closing of the womb of Rachel that happens just a couple of verses later. There's this pattern again of intermarriage with your own family, where Abraham marries his cousin, Isaac marries his cousin, and Jacob marries his cousin. And then here we have this um, this contrast between Leah and Rachel, where Rachel is the traditionally good-looking one, Leah has these beautiful eyes, right? These these delicate eyes, these fragile ones. And some interpretations say that she's a little bit blind, that she probably needed glasses and didn't have access to those because those wouldn't be invented for several thousand more years. But there's some debate on wh- whether Leah is disabled or whether this is just a statement about their appearance. Now, as far as I far as you know, the Hebrew is simply not clear. It just basically means soft. Which can be, you know, I like staring into somebody's soft eyes. That sounds lovely to me. But it also could be weak, you know, so it's really hard to know. Yeah, absolutely. And that word is used in both contexts many times. There's soft wood and then there's rotting wood. And this is the same sort of word that is used in both places. So now here's the thing that I think is so funny is that Laban and Rebecca were clearly raised by tricksters. Like they have the same playbook. Like (laughs) here's this thing that 
you expect to be giving to this one person, and I'm just going to swap it out at the last second, and you're going to have to be okay with it. This exact thing that Jacob had just done to Esau, or just done to, to his father Isaac, where he goes in, he pretends to be Esau to get the blessing, is now turned around on him, where instead of getting Rachel, he gets Leah, which, you know, I have to ask, you've been in love with Rachel for seven years. How do you not know? Like, <laughs> well, I guess like you got to assume there's probably a lot of wine involved and probably some pretty heavy veils. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, one of the things that is discussed a little bit is the idea that Rachel was a little bit older when they get married because they met, she was presumably at youngest a teenager uh, when they first met and then 14 years later, when they finally get married, she's in her mid to late 30s, right? It is harder to have children as a mid to late 30-year-old. There's questions on whether or not that actually played a factor into this, and how does that, in a culture that is so based on your fertility as a woman, how does that influence Mm -hmm. Rachel's fate that her father denies her capacity to give birth in this way by not allowing her to marry her husband at an age that would be more appropriate and easier for her to have children. I'm uh, maybe a little bit puzzled because from what I understand, they get married seven days apart, right? Is that your interpretation of the story? (laughs) Yes, he works for seven years. He gets Leah. Then Laban says, you do a week with Leah, then you can marry Rachel, and then you owe me another seven years. Mm. So they get married a week apart. No, that's 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 brilliant. Yes, you're right. Um, completely celebratory week with this woman. Then I will give you this other woman too for your work if you work for me seven more years. I've always interpreted that as work for me another seven years. Like, and then at the end of the seven years, you'll have this. But in verse thirty, Jacob slept with Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He worked for Laban seven more years. So yeah, they're probably both married. Leah's maybe a couple years older, right? But there's probably just out of adolescence, probably, when they're both married. And obviously, Leah is extremely fertile, but not so much, not so much Rachel. I love this direct God stepping in on the side of the oppressed person, right? When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, God opened her womb. Like, there isn't any ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's that God saw that Leah was being treated unjustly, that she wasn't being cared for as a member of this polyamorous family. And so God blesses her with the most supreme blessing that exists in this time period. But Rachel is unable to have children. It doesn't say that God makes her unable to have children, but specifically that God blesses Leah and doesn't necessarily bless Rachel in the same way. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, and this pattern of God choosing the unloved one, it does happen. I mean, it's exactly the same happen thing, same thing that happens with uh, Hannah and her Elkanah and the other wife. You know, same thing. Elkanah loves Hannah and doesn't love the other wife, but the other wife gets all the children. It's exactly the same pattern. And, and it's one of those tropes, obviously, in ancient Hebrew storytelling. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, one of these tropes that is coming up in these stories again and again are, I'm unable to have children, so take my slave, take my servant, marry them, have the children on my behalf. And like Bilhah and Zilpah's motherhood of these children are really not brought into account of the rest of the story. As I spent six years practicing Judaism, we never mentioned Leah (laughs) while we were remembering these prayers. And Leah is not remembered in this story. It is Rachel who's remembered in this story. And so, you know, we get some Leah erasure here in the <laughs> when ultimately the, the people of God who are still practicing and preaching the story and remembering the story here are not even descended from Rachel. Yeah, and she's the one who gets cited and, in, in, you know, Rachel weeping for her children and Jeremiah and, oh, yes, it's, uh, yeah. and that gets into the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I say, you know, aren't descended from, but you do have to remember that the Israelites are all wild, intermarried with one another. And so. <laughs> but these are these are the stories of who they are. And you're right. They don't necessarily hold on to the, the right legendary ancestors. Yeah. I really wonder why that is. Why there is just this tendency, I think, in human beings to forget the people who 
who are not featured as the main characters in the story. But most of the time, I think that's where everything interesting is happening. (laughs) That's part of the reason that I like reading people's histories so much better than the stories of great men. Because the stories of great men, you know, when you listen to a podcast like Behind the Bastards, but also the way that they end up telling the story is making it sound like this is the great man history. Like, if you listen to them very quickly, like I do, you'll hear in rapid succession them saying, yeah, this is really the origin of this thing. But they've said that like three or four times about several different people, (laughs) rather than recognizing perhaps it's part of the culture that's rising up. Perhaps this is part of a broader ideological movement that is present in a lot of different ways and happens to pop up in similar ways in different ways, right? The thing about the story, I mean, you're absolutely right. The The tradition has focused on these main characters. But if you, as I read this story, once Jacob gets married to these two women and they get their servants, it's almost like he drops out of the story. After that, Jacob is almost totally useless in this whole story. He says nothing. He's obviously a sperm donor, but he, he simply, he's going around. He sleeps where he's told to sleep. He makes absolutely no decisions. He just lets, let, you know, he doesn't matter. And as I read the story, it's the dynamics actually between Rachel and Leah and to a certain extent, the other two women that really strike me. I mean, this is... This is a woman's story. It's a women's story. And yes, the women themselves within society are absolutely powerless. They're pieces of property that have just been transferred from their father to to their husband. But they are the interesting, uh, thoughtful, you, you can see their motives, you can see what's going on in their relationship in the story. And I haven't really seen that. But in Genesis, up until this point, where have you seen that sort of deep personal interaction? We get it when we get to Joseph and his story, but this is sort of the first real personal story, and it's a story between two women, ultimately, with Jacob as this side character. Yeah. Well, and I I love you put it that way, because we keep commenting throughout this podcast about the fact that it seems like the main characters are very passive. Like, you know, the Abraham is not really the decider of his own fate. It just seems like he's going along with things a lot of the time. And Isaac and Jacob as well, where like Jacob sits back and lets Rebecca do the scheme and do everything. And then he just, he gets the benefit of it. And even Moses, like even Moses doesn't really want to go along with this plan. Moses, this this ultimate figure in in the story of the Bible, one of the most important figures that there are, isn't the person who wants to go out and lead the people of Israel. He sits back and God calls him anyway. And so, you know, it is interesting here that the active participants are Rachel and Leah, who are willing to take their fate into their own hands to, to make these things happen, um, rather than Jacob, who seems to be the main character, but is not fumbling around, but doesn't seem to be making, <laughs> taking charge in his own life. It's to- totally passive, totally passive. He just does as he's told. Which is not how our culture tells stories, right? Our culture generally tells stories where the protagonist is the person making all the big decisions. And we sort of look at it as if mm-hmm. they choose their fate rather than that there are wider societal decisions and individual decisions that are happening around them that form the shape of their lives. Yeah, and sort of Rachel and Leah, they're in this this world where, you know, their ability to have significance and meaning are basically, you know, reduced to two things, you know, earning the love of their husband and bearing male children. That's it. They are struggling for meaning and significance in the only way that they are allowed to do so. And unfortunately, that sort of makes them enemies to each other when they really should be allies because they're both been treated in exactly the same way. And yet, I find them compelling, fascinating, interesting characters. Well, and this relates back to the last episode that you were on, right? Where, Where the Edomites up on the mountains share a common language with the Hebrew people. They share a lot of the same cultural stories with the Hebrew people, and yet they're enemies because they live up in the mountains and we live down here. There are these natural allies who, for every reason, should be cooperating, but instead become rivals against one another rather than the bigger enemy that they're both facing, the patriarchy, (laughs) that sold them into 
a life where baby making was their greatest calling, rather than recognizing that these two very smart, very savvy, very wily individuals could do something else with their lives. I'm really interested in the names of all the tribes. And this is something you really miss if you don't read the Hebrew. And so these are these are a little bit punny. These are a little bit explanations as they're going along. So Rachel says, The Lord saw my harsh treatment, and now my husband will love me when she names Reuben. And she calls him Reuben because Reuben means he has looked on me. And the he is a little bit unclear. Is the he God or is the he her husband that has finally looked on me, right? Then with Simeon, she says, the Lord heard that I was unloved, so God gave me the son too, and she named him Simeon. And Simeon means God hears me. So there it's, it's much more clear that God is the one who is joining in on this action. But the rest of the names, only Judah actually refers to God at all. The rest are these unclear explanations as it goes through. So Levi, now now this time my husband will embrace me since I have given birth to three sons for him. So she named him Levi, and Levi means joined to me. Levi is, is a word that's often associated with marriage and connection. This time and then with Judah, she says, This time I will praise the Lord. And Judah means I will praise the Lord. It's Judah, which is the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, that is interspersed with this word for praise. Oh, I must say, I, I sort of feel like, I mean, you, you feel as Leah is, as Leah is going through these, these four children, it's like, you know, it, with each one, she's, she seeps, oh, I'm going to have this kid and my husband's going to love me. And oh, no, this one's going to do it. This one's finally going to do it. He's finally going to love me. Oh, oh, the third one, he's going to be joined to me. Yes, yes. And then she gets the fourth one says, well, Praise God, he gave me a son. I think he's. I think she's finally given up. She's realized that no, he's not going to. She's not going to win his love with these sons, as fine as sons as they are. Which is just awful. What a heartless, just dick you'd have to be <laughs> to, to to have the privilege to to not be drawn close to someone who's yes that you've gone through this incredible experience. With. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So once again, the patriarchs of the Bible are kind of scumbags. And not kind of scumbags, just like it feels like genuinely not good people, at least as depicted in the Bible. And yet these are still the people that God chooses to enact salvation for the entire world through. So imagine what God can use me, who's like kind of a jerk a lot of the time, for if, if God can even use these really terrible scumbags. <laughs> imagine what God could do with a kind of decent person. But anyway, all of these names here, and let me just list through the rest of the names. Gad means given good fortune. Asher means happy am I. Naphtali means my wrestling, which is interesting because remember Jacob will go on to wrestle with God, and that is a central concept of the people of God. Simeon means God hears me. Issachar means purchased me. Zebulon means dwelling. And Joseph, Joseph is the most important one. It means will add to me. And that is super important because not only is Rachel trying to say, God, give me another, give me another child, but it is also like what Joseph will do to Egypt is Joseph will add to Egypt and turn Egypt into the most powerful nation in the world, in the ancient Near East. The Jewish story is that Joseph is the reason that Egypt is powerful, which will ultimately be the cause of the subjugation of the Hebrew people. That's just a little bit of foreshadow into the rest of the story. But Dina's name is specifically, again, foreshadowing, means justified and God will judge. And so, you know, it is, it's related to a concept of justice that will come again when Dina is the victim of really cruel injustice later on in the story. Mm -hmm. At the hand of her own brothers, of course, but yes, but that's another day. That's another story. Yes. All these names and everything are happening. And then Leah said, I'm happy now because women call me happy. Um, and this, this little line is, is so interesting to me um, for lots of reasons. Uh, <laughs> well, why don't the two of us, uh, people who don't identify as women, talk about this line about women and feminism. Um, <laughs> but it's drawing back to the fact that here in this toxically masculine story, 
Leia can't be happy because she's had her own children and all of these other things. I'm happy now because women call me happy. I'm happy now because I'm evaluated by the outside world to be happy, rather than I'm happy because I am intrinsically happy, right? She's not actually getting any self-worth out of this. She's not actually getting her own meaning. She's just getting societal recognition for who she is, this this constructed identity. For living up to her expected role kind of thing, yes. And even going above and beyond to live into her expected role by giving her servant Zilpah to give two children to Jacob as well. I'm reading this really interesting story, this interesting book that's called Swastika Night. It was written in 1938 before the Nazis really started to enact their final solution and really started most of the wars that they would end up fighting. It's written a good deal before that, but basically as she's observing and she's listening to what Hitler is saying and saying, this is what the world is going to look like if the Germans win. She writes this story that's set 700 years in the future after the Germans and the Japanese have won and Japan has carved up most of the world. Germany has carved up half the world. And one of the things that they've done is that Germany has completely subjugated women, like made women into a subject race, basically a completely different thing where they aren't able to stand up straight and they aren't able to learn a full language because they aren't talked to except to be demanded to do these things. And, and one of the central themes of the book is that even the men are not fully men because women are not allowed any dignity. They're not allowed any respect. They're not allowed any happiness. It is just based off of how many sons can you have and how can these be propped out as fast as possible. And so the the author is really fixated on this theme that was true in the ancient near, near world as well. And especially seems like Leia is just the ultimate example of where if your meaning is and your dignity is only rooted in the supply of masculinity that you can provide to the world, that's a wildly shunted form of existence. You're not able to be your full self. Leia is not able to embrace all that she is meant to be because instead she is just basing her worth off of what other women say that makes you happy. And not just what women say, but what the men have told women to believe. And the, and the lines that the women, the men have forced the women within to find their identity and purpose and value. Yeah. And the ways that this rivalry between Rachel and Leah have reinforced these boundaries rather than, as you were saying, the two of them uniting so they can overthrow <laughs> the terrible system that suppresses them. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, let's get on to the Mandrakes, because the Mandrakes... Oh, we must get on to the Mandrakes. I love the Common English Bible's translation. There there are so many times that the Common English Bible, like in the Baptism of Christ, the traditional way is, Behold my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in the Common English Bible, it's, Behold my Son, in whom I am deeply happy. I am very happy, or who makes me happy. And I just love that picture. It isn't just that God is pleased. It's not just that, like, that we've gi- given the right incense and, you know, that we've somehow tricked God into a moment of non-displeasure, <laughs> but instead that, that Jesus actually makes God happy, that, that God is a being who can experience joy and love and, and all of those things. And, you know, we talk about the fact that God is love, but oftentimes in our theology, we act as if love has nothing to do with our human emotions (laughs) and as if the love that we feel as humans is not deeply integral to who we are and the foundation of our universe. And, And that's why I think in this story, God shows up and says, Leia is unloved, so I'm going to be love to her. Anyway, all of that to say that here in this story, Relating all this back (laughs) is that this word uh, is often translated in really weird ways, but I just love the erotic herbs (laughs) translation. (laughs) Like, as you say, love is definitely a theme that runs through all of this, and it gets twisted and used in all ways. But what the Hebrew actually says here is Reuben went and found love plants. So that's what the Hebrew says. And yeah, erotic herbs is probably a pretty decent a translation of that into English. Yeah, so it's it's pretty good. But perhaps by losing that word love, you also don't get that connection that runs through the whole passage. It's, there's a lot of love going on in this passage. But of course, most English translations do translate it as mandrakes. 
That's what it's translated as in the in the ancient Greek translation, the Septuagint. It's translated as mandrakes, mandragora. So what is a mandrake? A mandrake is a plant that is native. There is a version that's native to Europe, which is a little bit different from what would have been in this. There's a different, uh, they have Latin names that I don't have in front of me. But yeah, they're they're related to each other. But there's one from Europe and there's one from in in the Levant. And it is, if you're at all up with popular culture, you do know a little something about mandrakes because you either read or saw uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, right? Because there is the scene, there is a scene where they have mandrakes. Uh, I, when I did, I did an episode on this story, and and I pulled the clip of uh, of Hermione explaining what mandrake or mandragora is. And um, but it's actually that's a good introduction if you want to start with Harry Potter. Uh, because it is a plant that was believed in the ancient world to have magical properties. It had a root that if you pulled it up, uh, it did look like a, a human being. And that in itself probably created a lot of the, the, the stories that this was something that had something to do with fertility and making babies because it looked like a little, little person. And there was also, this is not in the time of Genesis, but in the Middle Ages, there was actually a belief that if you pulled a mandrake out of the ground in Europe improperly, it would scream, the root would scream, and you would be cursed. So even that, uh, J.K. Rowling uh, stole from, from medieval beliefs and put into her book. But the other thing about the mandrake is, it is actually a highly, highly toxic plant. You eat enough of it, it will kill you. But in more careful doses, it can cause euphoria, it can cause hallucinations, it can be used as to put people to sleep for, you know, it was used in ancient times to put people to sleep for surgery in the ancient world as an anesthesia as well. Um, so, yeah, so no wonder people looked at it with all kinds of suspicion. And yes, it was powerful. And they extended that. Well, it was, so it was believed to be an aphrodisiac. It was believed to cure infertility. And obviously, as soon as, and I, I think ancient readers, as soon as Reuben finds these mandrakes, as soon as they hear mandrakes come up in the story, and they have two women, one of whom is struggling with infertility and the other who, who has struggling with getting her husband to want her, both would have wanted this, this herb. Rachel wants to use it to get pregnant. Leah wants it to use, her, use it to get, uh, get her husband. And then we have this really fascinating thing where, well, of course, Rachel's got the son, so she, her son brings the, the mandrakes to her. Oh, and I can just see the scene, right? Because she's got a plan, right? Now, it's obvious as you read the story. Uh, it says earlier that Leah has stopped bearing children. But what we discover in the middle of this story is the reason why she stopped bearing children is because Jacob isn't sleeping with her anymore, right? And so she trades the mandrakes to Rachel to get access to her husband's penis. I don't know. What do you, how do we put this? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Your husband's yeah. sperm to get her husband. Um, but I also assume that they both want the properties of the mandrakes. So I'm also assuming that what Leah is using it as an aphrodisiac. You know, maybe, maybe Jacob, I'm going to put it this way, maybe you just can't get it up for Leah anymore, right? I think it's actually the inverse one of chapter 30. Rachel realized she could bear, she could bear Jacob and children. Jacob became jealous of her sister and said to Jacob, give me children. If you don't, I may as well be dead. I think that from that point on, he's not sleeping with, with Leah because Rachel has said, no, you can't sleep with, you can't sleep with Leah. That's all mine. Uh, that, that could be, yes. But it's also that Leah gets access using the mandrakes. Um, and I think her intention is also, because she didn't obviously didn't give all of the mandrakes to, Ra to Rachel. I mean, she's no fool, obviously. So I think she drugged him with this aphrodisiac to get him. Maybe we're even supposed to read into it. This is sort of an ancient Viagra. You know, he, she got Jacob to do what he wasn't doing for her anymore. So there's, there's that. <laughs> And, and and that seems to be, most interpreters I've read, that seems to be the end of the story. The whole trade between the, you know, the, the for the mandrakes uh, is how Leah gets 
access to Jacob's sperm again, and she starts having babies again. But what about Rachel's mandrakes? Are we just supposed to think she did nothing with them? Of course not. I think we are supposed to understand that she created some kind of fertility charm that, at least in her eyes, led to her success in having a child. You know, God remembered Rachel. She conceived and bore a son. God took, takes away my reproach. She named Jason, Jacob. She she acknowledges God, but that doesn't mean she doesn't think that the, the mandrakes had a part in it. It can be both. I can spur on my fate and it still be God doing it, you know? <laughs> Remember when, when Rachel ran away from her, well, no, that's in the next scene. When they run away, uh, Rachel steals her father's household gods. Yeah, I forget the Hebrew name. Presumably because she has her own beliefs that are not necessarily her husband. So she had beliefs about mandrakes and what they could do for her in her situation. So I think, yeah, I think the mandrakes, at least in the eyes of Rachel and in the eyes of the readers, the original readers, yeah, they played a role in Rachel finally having her her child. One of my favorite late night conversations in seminary was a friend of mine who was just absolutely convinced that mandrakes are the reason that ancient fertility goddesses were carved the way that they were <laughs> and thought that like basically it was ancient people pulling up these roots saying that looks like a human being and then making art of the mandrake rather than actual other human beings that that caused it to be this way but it was like this naturally occurring thing. I, I wasn't convinced. I wasn't convinced. I love mandrakes because, like, it's everything from this fertility symbol all the way to this poison, right? And so it's called everything from master of the life breath in old Arabic to devil's testicle. And so, like, and everything in between that. <laughs> so mandrake is an interesting thing that, uh, you know, in, I think it's in, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra by by Shakespeare that mandroga is is this sleep inducing drug that Cleopatra uses until Anthony comes back. Yeah, it's it's also it's closely related to nightshade, which I think is also appears in Shakespeare as well. Yeah, you really should go and Google some pictures of medieval mandrakes because it is hilarious. This my favorite picture is this guy. It looks like a little Buddha is growing underneath this beautiful plant, and the guy is like freaking out because there's a human whose head is growing. <laughs> All this stuff, and that's very clearly how ancient people reacted to this plant, and it's it's huge. Yeah, and and in fact, the root is the part that ha- is the most has the greatest power to it in terms of, you know, hallucinogens and all of these things. You know, once again, we see, I don't want to say witchy behavior, but it certainly seems witchy. (laughs) And we can call that medicinal, right? We can say those sort of things. But there is this sort of belief in the magic here that seems to have a real impact on how things actually turn out in the story. And when people ask me, why do I as a leftist continue to hold on to my faith? It's because I think the beliefs changes things. (laughs) I think the fact that I believe that the Eucharist literally turns into the body and blood of, of my Savior means it does for me. And if you don't believe it, it might not for you, but it works for me. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and... Well, there, there is an incredible power in believing. And I mean, even in medicine, you know, people believe in placebos and it can contribute to their, you know, it is part of who we are. We are people who put our faith in things and people, and it does make a difference. Um, and doesn't necessarily mean we're always right in what we believe, but it makes a difference, yeah. There are studies that show that placebos, even if you're being told this is a placebo, you can be told every step of the journey it's a placebo, and you can still reap health benefits from believing <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, you're, that you're taking something that's useful. Human beings, our capacity for belief is magnificent. There's a there's a book that I love by Terry Pratchett called Small Gods that is all about the power of belief. And it, it's sort of the quintessential. He also writes a book called Hogfather, which basically the, both of them are the same premise, that it's the epitome of postmodernist philosophy, that Santa Claus only exists because we believe in Santa Claus. And when people stop believing in Santa Claus, then Santa Claus starts to disappear in some way. So we have to bring back belief, you know, to do that sort of thing. But I think that the key difference 
difference is that I don't want people to believe in Christianity because, because it is objectively the most correct answer. I don't want people to believe because I think that I am objectively right, but because faith, hope, and love are the foundation, I think, of what it means to be human, that we hope for a world where we're able to get what we finally want. For Rachel, that is a child. That is the physical manifestation of the great love that she and her husband share. That that hope is what matters. And that Leah continues to go on because she hopes that someday she can do enough that her husband will love her. And, you know, whether or not that happens in the story is a different question, but she hopes for it, right? And they have this faith in this magical thing, this magical plant that will help both of them achieve their fate, right? Help them achieve the things that they want out of life, which is motivated by love. I think that both Leah and Rachel love Jacob very dearly and want him to be happy, you know, it's not said as explicitly that Jacob loves Leah at all. I hope that he does, but <laughs> but it's very clear that Jacob at least has a deep affection for Rachel. And we have no idea. We're not told what Rachel thinks of J- of Jacob at any point because that's not really considered important. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Which is why it's, you know, only kind of a romantic story. Um, (laughs) I kind of suspect that Rachel maybe would have gotten a little tired of Jacob and his, (laughs) you know, his puppy dog following around everywhere. uh, I tend to think that Rachel was a powerful woman and probably enjoyed having uh, (laughs) a docile husband, to put it as politely as I can. Well, she certainly doesn't hesitate to order him around uh, and tell him who to sleep with. Yep. Yep. No, no. <laughs> Which, again, is just such a constant part of these stories, that, that women have a lot of power in these relationships, even if institutionally they don't have power. Their husbands are very passive versus what they what they want to do. People will make what power they can, even in, in that kind of situation. Absolutely. And it is a different kind of power, but it is a power that exists there. A soft power, I suppose, rather than a hierarchical one that they're able to use to their advantage and they're able to leverage those things for the things that they need and for the people that they love. But this story of jealousy, of rivalry, of all of those things will play directly into the next story, where this story shifts from being about Jacob in a couple of chapters and shifts instead to being about Joseph, where the son of the jealous woman becomes the one that all of the sons are jealous of, where he is the special one because he's the only one who's the son of Rachel, and he becomes the target by the dominant group, by the majority, and and then how his eventual rise to power flips that dynamic and makes all of his brothers into the oppressed instead. And so that is just a preview of the ways that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's almost like it's a theme in the book of Genesis and almost as if this you know need to see each other as allies rather than as rivals, again, just permeates this book where if Rachel and Leah had just seen each other as people in need of love, and taking the chance to love each other, they would have solved so many of these problems. We need to find ways to bridge and understand and have sympathy for someone who sees. Even in this story, it's so hard. I mean, uh, it's it's almost like, you know, the it's Reuben who gets the, the mandrakes, you know? It's Leah's son, and it's Leah's son's mandrakes, and it's like she's rubbing Rachel's face in it. My son got these wonderful mandrakes. If it, you know, too bad you don't have any nice sons that'll get you nice flowers, but I, you know, and then so I'm sure Rachel is rubbing Leah's face in the fact, well, you got to pay me off to even get some time with my husband because he, I got him wrapped around my little finger. It's so easy, uh, but somewhere in there, they were sisters. Somewhere before Laban messed up their life, they used to comfort one another and encourage one another, and they were probably the best sisters in the world, and these men kind of came in between them, and it's kind of sad to think about. And here they're competing with one another for significance and meaning and love. I love the way that you put that in your episode, where Rachel has that moment where she says, my husband, and... Jacob is married to Leah first. Like he is both of their husbands, but Rachel has that ownership, right? My husband, 
my country, my tax dollars, all of these things that I claim ownership over, but are shared between us. And when I say mine instead of ours, I'm limiting our capacity for relationship and community building and and solution finding in all of these things. And ultimately failing to see literally my flesh and blood, my own sister, as a fully human person who is in desperate need of the love that I'm getting. Scott, this has just been a wonderful conversation. As always, I so appreciate talking to you. You have any closing thoughts? Well, let's let's love our sisters instead of fighting with them, even if we're different. Let's just love. Let's just love them. Just because the system has put us in this this situation where we have to compete with one another, let's let's choose to love each other instead. Absolutely, our entire system is set up so that we are divided against each other, so that queer folks are divided against other queer folks, and people of color are divided against other people of color, and women are divided against other women. And instead, if we recognize our common humanity, the common struggle that we face against sexism, racism, homophobia, and capitalism, then we are able to build the world that God is actually calling us to, where no one is left unloved, but that God steps in for all of us to ensure we all get to participate in that ultimate reality of love. Well, thank you, dear listeners, for being a part of us. Thank you so much for doing all your rating and reviewing of us on on the Apple Podcasts and whatnot. We have officially gotten over that anti-vaxxer podcast, so I am very excited to announce that. (laughs) Please go and review and rate and share this podcast with your friends. can't donate to our Patreon. That is another wonderful way to make sure that our podcast is actually got out there to other folks. And hopefully, we'll invite people who can afford to sustain our education editors, plural, with their donations. So thank you all so much. And thank you, Scott, again, for a wonderful conversation. Now, Pastor Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go and recognize that the person that our world has set up as our rival is our sister, our own flesh and blood, desperate for love. And let us reach out with the love they need. Shalom. And of course, he marries his cousin and her sister and... And their slaves, yeah. Right. And so cousin marriage is the biblical ideal. I'm just kidding. <laughs>